Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with authors with books in the field. Joining us today is Samuel Helfand of the Naval War College at the Naval Postgraduate School, author of the new book, Compulsion in Religion, Saddam Hussein, Islam, and the Roots of Insurgencies in Iraq, which was published recently by Oxford University Press. Uh, Sam, thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark. Thank you. So why don't we start just by you telling us a little bit about the book. What, what made you want to write this, and what do you think the main contributions of the book are? Okay, so, uh, I mean, why I wanted to write it is, is a sort of combination of just intellectual uh, curiosity um, and my own uh, personal background. Um, I served in, in the Navy, and I went to uh, Iraq in, in 2003. Uh, with the initial invasion, I'd always sort of had this interesting part of my uh, my life and my own my own background. Uh, and then just when I was when I was in grad school, um, you know, working on working through my general exams, uh, the Iraqi archives opened up. Um, Iraq, you know, documents that were taken from Iraq. Uh, so there's a whole ethical issue there. We could talk about later if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, these these documents opened up with a wealth of information. It was a kind of unique case in the Middle East um, that you could actually look inside how one of these regimes works. Um, Obviously, Iraq was still a burning issue uh, at the time. This was 2009, 2010, when I started my dissertation. And it continues to be of interest today. So there was a number of questions surrounding Iraq. One was this issue of religion, right? There had been all sorts of debates um, around Iraq and Al Qaeda, um, you know, prior to 2003 and after 2003, um, there were different debates about whether Saddam had sort of embraced, uh, had sort of gone with the, the regional flow and embracing uh, Islamists, uh, or whether he stayed, you know, completely secular. Uh, if he did stay secular, then what explained? the sort of rise in or the promotion of, of religion and religious symbols uh, within Iraq. So I, I dug into those questions and then, and then started looking at as well, you know, as the title suggests, how this affected uh, post-2003 Iraq. Uh, what I found was very interesting. Um, I found that, you know, there was a sort of proliferation of religious symbols um, and religious rhetoric in Iraq, uh, especially in the 1990s. But when you sort of dug down, you, you see that a lot of this was uh, promoted and, and, and created by the regime, not as a way to embrace Islamism, but as, as a way to sort of combat it. Um, so you try to undermine Islamists by showing how you know, religious you are uh, and how your interpretation of religion is different than theirs, and yours is the more reasonable, uh, more authentic uh, interpretation. Uh, that's what I found in the 1990s. And there's another question of, okay, well, why does this occur? Part of it is just a regional story, right? There's, there's the rise of sort of religious rhetoric throughout the region, religious politics. But there's also a story of authoritarianism here, which hadn't been told yet. Um, and what I found was that the regime really had this rhetoric in the 1970s. When, come to, when Saddam is coming to power in the late 1970s, um, now we have we can look behind the scenes. We can see behind the scenes. He's actually saying the same things that he was saying in the 1990s, and he's saying that, you know, he would actually like to use. He thinks religion could be an important uh, instrument for him and his regime, um, but he has a problem, which is that he doesn't control the religious landscape. So you can't get out into public and start saying to people, 
um, hey, be a good Muslim, go to the mosque, you know, be, you know, embrace Islam. When if they go to the mosque, they might hear something that is detrimental to the regime security, right? Hey, this regime is, is, is not Islamic. It's no good. We should, we should uh, rebel against this regime. This is especially the case, you know, during the Iran-Iraq war, when there are some sympathy among some Shia in the South um, towards Islamic revolution, right? The, that's going on next door in Iran. Not all of them, not even most of them, but there were, there were some pockets of that for sure. Um, so you see Saddam and his regime, the Ba'athist regime, begin to sort of uh, try to shape the religious landscape, try to eliminate people they see as problematic, try to replace them with people that they think uh, are more loyal to the regime, or at least will, will follow the rules. Uh, and as they do this, as they get you know, uh, more security, they feel safer about what's going to be said in the mosque. Um, because they're not only are they putting the right people in, but they're putting all sorts of institutions together to sort of control um, these religious leaders to monitor them. And as they're feeling safer about doing this, uh, as they feel more secure with what's gonna be said in the mosque, they go and start speaking more openly about religion. There's also the other factor here is that, you know, as they are sort of co-opting religious leaders um, throughout the late 1970s, it begins, but really throughout the 1980s, they find people who will actually spread the message, right? So now you have people who you can tell, you couldn't tell, Saddam couldn't tell people in Iraq, Iraqis to go uh, take a class on the Quran because they had no one to teach that class on the Quran in a way that they felt, you know, okay with. Uh, but by the 1990s, they have a whole cadre of people that they've trained and they're monitoring and they've checked all their backgrounds. They do really extensive background checks on these people. Uh, and they feel safe sending people to, to sort of learn the Quran because they feel like they're going to learn it uh, the right way, which is in line with Ba'athist ideology, right? That, that Islam is an Arab religion, that Islamists uh, are perverting it, right? That Persians aren't, you know, Iranians, Persians aren't real Muslims. If they were, they would be, you know, Arab nationalist. Um, and then, you know, the system of control, I, I follow very closely in the book uh, throughout the 1990s. Uh, and then I look to 2003, where the assumption on the U.S. part was that the Iraqis really didn't have control, uh, which I find to be, you know, just, it was a huge mistake on behalf of uh, people planning the war in, in post-2000, in 2003. Um, and they go in thinking that the, that the regime, when it crumbles, is, you know, isn't going to have much effect on Iraqi society or religious landscape to the extent that they thought about it because they didn't think the regime really had control. What you find is that the regime had a very strict control. Uh, and when this all crumbles in 2003, it leaves massive voids, uh, which different actor, religious actors uh, attempt to fill and leads to all sorts of va uh, violence and, and chaos um, in post-2003. So those are the basic arguments of, of the book. Yes, there's a, there's a lot. There. There's a lot of stuff to dig into here. Well, maybe we could yep. start with um, the way you were able to use the archives, because I think that this is one of the things, as you say, that has made the study of Iraq a little bit different from most um, uh, Middle East studies uh, uh, of late, um, which is the ability to not only look at behavior and rhetoric, but actually to look at these documents behind the scenes. Um, and so Tell us a little bit more about what you found, um, what you were looking at uh, in these archives and how that helped you methodologically. Okay, so there are uh, a few different sets of archives. We should actually be, be clear about this. Uh, they're often lumped together, you know, uh, 
but but there are a few different sets. Um, the first set, which is probably the most important for this case and is is by far the biggest uh, set, are uh, are records of the uh, Bath Party sectariat in in Baghdad. Um, and what we have are the entire records of this office, the sectariat, which it comes out to something like 11 million pages. Uh, and they're, they're responsible for, you know, controlling what's going on in Iraq. Um, and they keep very close tabs on, um, on what's happening. Um, so that provides the most information. Then you have these other records, which were state records, which um, I should say that those Iraqi records were taken by uh, the Bath Party records were taken by Iraqi dissidents, Kanan Makia and his organization, uh, who was an Iraqi dissident who was working closely with the Bush administration. Um, so eventually they, they had planned to keep them in Iraq. Uh, it got a little bit hairy during, you know, the height of, of the, uh, the violence there in 2006 and 2007, and they moved them out of Iraq to the United States. Uh, there's another set of records, which were um, state records you know, ministries and Saddam's office and, and the, the military and the intelligence services and whatnot. Uh, these are actually, it's actually a much larger set mm -hmm. of records, it's something like a hundred million pages, but uh, only, it's only little bits and pieces of it have been made public uh, because the U.S. government insisted on uh, having them translated before they could be made public. So the original records of the Bath Party that are at Hoover, you can read in, in Arabic in the original. Mm -hmm. The uh, the state records they only translated sixty or seventy thousand pages because it was just too expensive. Right. Um, and those are gone now. Um, the entire record that whole set of one hundred million pages was was returned to Iraq, uh, you know, seven eight years ago. Um, and the office that was making them available, the translations available in the U.S. is, is now closed. It was a defense. The National Defense University. Uh, those are interesting records. They give you a sort of high level. You get some uh, some meetings of Saddam. He tape recorded his meetings, so they had the, the recordings of those meetings there. You could listen to them. You could see the transcripts, um, and you know you could really put together some of this high level discussion uh, that Saddam was having with the actual policies on the ground, which you see in in the Bath Party records um, at Hoover. So. Uh, you know, different topics are easier to find in the Hoover records. These aren't, you can't keyword search them. Uh, they're binders. The binders have a, a page of metadata attached to them. So you can sort of look through there or you can look at the name of the binder and see if you can find something. But it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. Um, there are also restrictions on what you can do, how you can use them. They won't let you photocopy anything. They won't let you take pictures or cut and paste. You have to sit there and just take notes. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to sit in the archive uh, at Stanford and probably for this project, I mean, it, it's going to take months and months and months, right? Um, people spend a whole year there working on a, a dissertation or something just every day sitting there reading, uh, and taking notes. Um, so working your way through that, it's, it's a different, difficult methodological problem because, you know, it's not always clear whether or not a thousand page binder is going to have any information in it that you need, or it could be full of information. Um, so it just takes a long time to sort of sit and get a feel for it before you can uh, move forward. Well, let's turn to some of the substance then. So, yep. so the um, there seems to be like two really interesting sides of this, which obviously are linked. But uh, maybe we could talk about them uh, uh, one by one. The first on the Sunni side, the other on the Shia side, because it, it, it's different types of challenges. Um, so on this on this on the Sunni side, um, you 
you know, you really trace the way that Saddam was approaching Islam here in terms of different types of possible threats to his regime, such as the Muslim Brotherhood, while also, you know, looking over at Saudi Arabia and uh, the Wahhabi establishment there and like trying to figure out how he could find a place for, for the state and for the regime there. And you talk about this building of this cadre of bureaucrats, of religious bureaucrats um, it, that are able and capable of doing that. So let's walk, it, walk us through that a little bit then in terms of how Saddam understood uh, the way that this kind of bureaucratic uh, state-led approach would protect his regime in these kinds of circumstances. Uh, sure. You know, the interest, if we're talking about, first of all, I should say, yes, there is, there are certainly different ways that he addresses Sunnis uh, and the Shia by, uh, you know, in practice. Um, in theory, you know, for Saddam's Ba'athist regime, uh, there is no difference, right? Now, so this is something you have to sort of be careful with when you're reading the documents, uh, because if you just read them, you know, at face value, you'll see that it's a taboo, right? Talking right. about any, any kind of sectarianism is really a taboo. You can't say, oh, um, there are Shis here and we're going to address the Shis this way and there are Sunnis there and we're going to address the Sunnis uh, this other way. For them, they're all just generic Arab Muslims, right? Um, that being said, there are different groups and they recognize that these different groups, um, you know, exist. Um, and that they have their own idea, you know, their own uh, sectarian bent. They they would call them any group that's you know, ardently Sunni, ardently Shia would, would be, you know, just considered sectarianism and, and bad, right? Um, so they have different phases of, of how they're addressing this, um, and part of it is ideological, part of it is geopolitical, right? Um, in the late 1970s, when Saddam is thinking about this, he really doesn't want anything to do with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and he's trying to do it on his own. And he's trying to figure things out. Um, and they don't really know what to do except for, uh, you know, start weeding out anyone who's bad. They don't really know even what's going on in the Iraqi religious landscape. They don't have a, um, a good idea of who's in these mosques, right? They do some surveys and they try to figure out who's, who's in the different mosques. And uh, they come up with a lot of incomplete information. So they start basically just closing the mosque down until they can get somebody in there um, who they trust, right? So they have to find people. First, they look within the Ba'ath Party, right? For anyone who has some sort of religious inclination who could go and be a, you know, a sermon giver or an imam at, at, a, at a local Sunni mosque. Um, and they're working through these different projects, right? They also try to organize people, right? So if you know, there's some money involved, uh, there's prestige. They create local councils of religious leaders who report up to a, 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 a you know, a council on the provincial level who reports to the, the regime, right? So they try to, you know, make a bureaucracy here. Um, they also realize, as you said, they have to create these religious bureaucrats because they realize that some of these secular folks that are in the Ba'ath Party uh, who don't really understand how to speak with the religious leaders can do more harm than good. So people have to have kind of special training to go work in the mosques, right? Mm -hmm. Not to offend anybody, um, to know, you know, how to do the right prayers and, and you know, say the right things um, and speak about religion um, in the right way, to kind of thread the needle between what's authentically Islamist, but also being true to Ba'athist ideology. Uh, they get some help in beginning in the, in the early 80s from the Saudis because 
they share these these interests with the Saudi Arabia, with Saudi Arabia uh, against the Iranian Revolution. You know, with regard to the Iranian Revolution, right? So they both see Iran as this threat. Um, the Baathists behind closed doors recognize that there is a threat, and that Iraqis are actually um, defecting, right, to 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 Iran. Um, and they realize that they don't really have much uh, background or understanding of how to work within this kind of religious sphere. And so the Saudis come in um, and, and help them, right? They, they help them to sort of design some, uh, some organizations. There's this popular Islamic conference that they, that they start, right, with, with Saudi help. Um, they work through this, with, through the Saudis and through the Gulf Arabs throughout the 1980s. Uh, during the 19, after during the Gulf War, really, uh, the Saudis, the, the Iraqis try to use this, these organizations to to support Iraqi efforts during the Gulf War, uh, and the Saudis are like, wait, wait a minute, that's you know, hmm. we helped you build these. You can't use these. Uh, but by that point, the Iraqis had built up enough sort of domestic capacity that they didn't need the Saudis anymore. So uh, they they broke off ties with the Saudis and the Gulf Arabs, and they began to. Um, they had enough people uh, that they had trained. They, you know, Saddam had created a university, for example. He had created an institute for uh, an Islamic university, I, I should say. He had created an institute for sermon givers uh, and imams to create them. Uh, they'd been working on religious education initiatives. So they had enough people that had the right kind of education and who they trusted that they didn't really need the Saudis anymore. And actually they could uh, reach out to other groups throughout the Middle East that were um, sort of unofficial Islam, you, you might say, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Islamists and groups that were uh, at odds, increasingly at odds with Saudi Arabia and this sort of state level Islam uh, in the 1990s and, and see that as a kind of base of transnational support. Um, but yeah, that's what they did. They, they sort of built up this capacity. Um, but, but, but for you, I mean, when you looked at it and look at how they talked about it and thought about it, it really was about about political power and control much more so than any kind of turn towards faith or, you know, becoming Islamist as some people argued at the time. Yeah, no, it really is about power. I mean, when they're talking about what makes a good religious leader, it's, uh, Hey, do they mention Saddam in their sermons? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, as the, as the, the, the political authority, um, do they, do they, um, you know, are they loyal to the regime? Right? Do they say anything that uh, may cause that loyalty in, into question? Right? So, you know, are, are they uh, with some sort of subversive Islamist group, the, the Muslim Brotherhood among the Sunnis, or some Salafi group, or, uh, you know, different Sadrist trends within uh, at different times among the Shia? Um, but they never talk about actual religious issues, right? There's no like, hey, you know, what's this guy's theology? They, they don't really care. Right, um, right. As long as you support the regime and you're going to say the right things and not say the wrong things, um, that's what they care about. And so you didn't see much evidence then for this idea that Saddam had become a jihadist or, you know, the kind of uh, arguments that have been made out there in the literature. No, I mean, exactly the opposite. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they have thousands of pages where they are looking for anybody who has any kind of jihadist or Islam, even a softer Islamist bent, and then just going after them uh, among the Sunnis and the Shia. So they're going after the Muslim Brothers and the Salafis. We have some now, some memoirs of Salafis who said, yeah, we did proliferate a little bit in the 1990s, but it was all very dangerous and it was all done behind closed doors. And if that ever got out, people's lives would be at stake. Um, 
there's also some sort of selection bias here in some of those arguments, right? So if you, mm-hmm. if you want to find, Saddam was very savvy, right? He reached out, like I said, to sort of these transnational groups, uh, anyone who would help him, right? So if there's an Al-Qaeda type group in Saudi Arabia that's against the Saudi regime in 1995, sure, he's going to, uh, to reach out to them. He's going to say all the right things to that group. At the same time, um, they reached out to other groups who were completely anti-Islamist. Um, so, for example, in 1993, they create this faith campaign in Iraq um, based on, you know, really this is done to undermine the Islamists. But, so and if you just look at the faith campaign in a vacuum, you'd say, oh, wow, look, they're, they're making this turn towards faith or something like that. But at the same time, they, they develop a sort of international initiative to gain uh, the... Um, uh, the support of students and youth movements internationally, because they see like on college campuses around the world, you know, a lot of people don't like what the United States is doing. Um, so they, they create a movement, a youth movement uh, that's associated with the non-aligned movement, right? Mm-hmm. And it's called the non-aligned movement of students and youth uh, who's, and it's, um, this is their main sort of outreach mechanism towards, uh, you know, student and youth organization, which is, it's just considerable, uh, I should say in the 1990s around the world and the, the the motto of this of this group that they're creating in 1993 is a secular organization for the betterment of humanity so um, basically they'll say whatever is useful yeah they'll say whatever is useful to to reaching uh these people that you know they when they're talking to the hardliners in pakistan you know they're using all the right language if they're talking to um you know somebody else in the west they, they use a completely different set of language well so then Let's switch that then over um, to the post-2003 period, because one of the things which is very interesting then in the book is how you trace the institutional legacies of all of this um, and how the, especially, I mean, I shouldn't say especially, but, but the ways in which the, like, the Sunni religious establishment very quickly adapts to the decapitation of the regime and the American occupation. So how exactly does this play out once uh, Saddam is overthrown? Sure. So there are um, a lot of things going on in, in the 1990s in Iraq. I mentioned before that, um, you know, we, we've seen now that some Salafis have, have discussed about, you know, the way they, they sort of proliferated, right, uh, uh, behind the scenes or, or underground in Iraq, right? They couldn't do it openly or, or publicly. So some of these ideas are, are out there. Um, there are some uh, Muslim Brotherhood folks operating on the ground, again, completely underground, right? Not in the open. Uh, they couldn't operate uh, uh, in the open. So you have, a, in 2003, you have a sort of mix of, of things that happen among these, these different religious scholars. Uh, on one hand, you have some people who had always sort of been operating in the shadows um, who couldn't speak publicly and now can, right? Mm-hmm. So there's folks who, who are sort of in the underground um, and now they come out of the shadows, uh, take over mosques. Some of them are violent, right? And, and the, the, unfortunately, the violent folks often win those, those debates uh, at the mosque uh, for who has control. Then there are other groups of people who, um, you know, were just going along with, with what the regime said. They might have had their own views, but they weren't really, um, they weren't saying them publicly, and they were, they were sort of cooperating with the regime. And, uh, and now there's no more regime there, and there's the next group that has, uh, seems to be gaining power. So they sort of switch loyalties, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, you know, you have just opportunists or, or people who are not even opportunists, but people who are just either, either just pure opportunists or they're 
completely disenfranchised. Something happens to radicalize them in post-2003, right, with all this violence, which is actually a, a, um, uh, a strategy, right? We have documents by Zarqawi now saying, you know, our, our, our job is to go and kill as many Shia as we can so that they come back and kill the Sunnis, and then the Sunnis will have to basically side with us, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and against the occupation or, or whatever it is. Um, so you have this mix uh, where people are sort of coming out of the shadows, gaining control of mosques, which they, they could have never done um, previously, right? Um, and, and finally, I should say there's also this sort of large group of people who, who didn't really understand what Saddam was doing, right? There's always a problem of communication between the population and, and the regime itself, right? They understood Saddam was for religion, right? Um, and they understood, you know, that there was this faith campaign and that they should go to the mosques. Uh, the mosque can be a, a useful uh, element of a place in society where you, you can get help, right? Where education and, and, uh, and welfare could be provided through these mosques, which the regime started doing as they got control mm-hmm. of them. Um, and then post-2003, when the regime sort of evaporates and some these other actors move out of the shadows, um, you know, the people are still going to the mosque, except for now, instead of having someone there that's going to tell you, you know, don't rebel, <laughs> don't, uh, don't be violent, uh, listen to the local authorities, listen to the state, you have people saying the exact opposite. So, you know, you have this sort of nasty mix uh, that's, that's occurring. And so, and so you talk about like a group like the Association of Muslim Scholars that comes out yep. and they've still got this nationalist orientation, at least at first. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and even they are a mix, though, right? Uh, right? Because they have some folks in there. Uh, the leader is, is a, a Muslim brother, right? And he had been exiled from Iraq. He wasn't allowed in Iraq, right? right. But even so, um, he comes back post-2003. And um, yeah, they're appealing to, you know, there is a certain landscape, right? And there is a certain uh, discourse that, that people, uh, that Iraqis are used to hearing, Right. Uh, and it's this nationalist discourse, right? It's not really sectarian, right? Because that had been a taboo and that, that taboo stays in place. Um, so they find different code words to talk about Shia if they have to talk about Shia, right? And they, they don't frame it in terms really of jihadism or something like that. They usually re- uh, talk about resistance. Uh, these are all terms that sort of come out of this revolutionary Arab nationalism rather than out of uh, Islamist uh, discourse. Um, you could even see this in, in much less, much more attenuated ways among more hardcore groups that become, you know, the Islamic State uh, later on. And their rhetoric, they're even at times uh, using words that were um, more Ba'athist, right? To talk about sectarianism, for example, they, they often talk about Safavi, right? Or uh, instead of saying, instead of saying, she, they, they'll say, you know, some Iraqi Shia, she is, is, is a Safavi right. or uh, they're Shu'ubi, right? Which these are, these are ethnic markers. They're not religious markers, right? Uh, these are Persians. They're, they're called Majus, right? They say, you know, these uh, Zoroastrians, they call them. Um, and so you see even some of this language sort of bleeds over into even more hardcore groups. But you're right, like the Association of Muslim Scholars, at least in the beginning, uh, in the initial stages, you know, they, they really adopt... Uh, this, this rhetoric. So when you look back then, I guess just one last question, you know, so you've did, you've done yep. this, you know, historical study with access to the archives and all of this. And you know, what would have been done 
differently, do you think, had the United States understood what was actually happening with Saddam and religion um, prior to 2003? What, what difference would it, ma- would it have made, do you think, um, had there been this kind of clarity or this, or this analytical insight? So it would have made uh, the war much more difficult and much more costly, maybe impossible. Um, you know, there's a question, right? There's always a question. And I get, of course, with my students here at the Naval War College and the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, and I had the same question, though, when I was at Penn or, or Princeton before this um, from the students, right? And it's an unanswered question, which is, was 2003, uh, you know, just always going to be a debacle? Was, this, was there no way to, to hold this, in, to, to carry out this invasion that would have been successful? Or was, was this something that could have been successful that was, uh, you know, just, completely mismanaged and, uh, and um, you know, because, it, because of all the mismanagement and poor decision-making, uh, just bad strategy that uh, it ended up in such, in such chaos. I mean, I think probably it's, it's the former, right? That this was just always going to be a debacle. Uh, but they would have known, right? There, there, was an, there was ideas going into 2003 that you could do this on the cheap, right? That the regime doesn't really have control. So therefore we don't really need that many troops um, to go and do this. Uh, and, you know, we can just sort of take off this top layer. Society is already at a kind of equilibrium. They're already governing themselves because the regime isn't really exercising any control. Um, and therefore, you know, we don't need many, many troops to actually carry out this. It's not going to be that costly for us. We can go in, decapitate the regime and leave. Uh, and society will just continue doing what society has been doing. Well, if, if, you know, the regime is really in control, that strategy doesn't work, right? So um, on one hand, you could, you'd hope that clear minds would just say, okay, well, this is a bad idea. This is going to cost way too much uh, in terms of, of people and, uh, and treasure uh, to, to, to carry this, this operation out. Uh, on the other hand, if they insisted, um, you'd have to go in with, you know, massive amounts of troops um, to sort of try to fill these voids, which I'm not sure you could actually do. So, so basically, um, you're think, saying that the Bush administration would have gone out of their way to not read the book. Yeah, the Bush administration would have gone out of their way to not read the book, right? Um, but I think it's also relevant in a lot of other places. If we think about sort of military operations, whether it's Libya or you know uh, what happened in Libya in 2011 or any operations in the future, uh, one of the main insights is that we don't know, right? Uh, there's there's just so much we don't know. I mean, we've been looking at Iraq. We had. The, the rock had been the, the, our focus for over 10 years, over a decade. And we, and we had such a poor understanding of what was actually happening in the country. Um, it's really kind of shocking. And if that's the case for Iraq, you know, just imagine what, what's, what's the case somewhere else uh, where has been less of a, you know, right. um, of a focus and how much we don't know, right, about, um, about these societies. Well, thanks. We've been speaking with uh, Samuel Helfont uh, from the Naval War College at the Naval Postgraduate School, author of the new book, Compulsion in Religion, Saddam Hussein, Islam, and the Roots of Insurgencies in Iraq from Oxford University Press. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Mark. <laughs>